be back with y'all for the remainder of our school year. I hope you all had a good break. I hope it was restful and refreshing and recharging and all of those good things. Um, so we're going to get back into it. And uh, so basically today is just a day of like, we'll have a small in-surface this morning. I'm going to lecture about uh, about the philosophy of teaching reading. So that'll be fun. And then, um, and then for the rest of the day, I mean, for you veterans, y'all kind of already know what to do. Like you're just getting ready for tomorrow. This is basically just a freebie day just to be able to get class ready and anything you lesson planning and anything you guys need to do for tomorrow. Y'all can stay for as little as or as long as you like after we dismiss. Uh, but we will provide lunch for y'all. So at least stay till lunch and get some food. Uh, so, yeah, so that'll be good. So at least half a day today. So <clears throat> so it's good. It's good to be back. It's good to see what the Lord's going to do this year, do for the remainder of our time uh, together into the summer. So I want to talk about a philosophy of teaching reading. Since that's something we do every day here at CCA, I think it's important to, that we discuss why we spend so much time helping students to read. And why is it important for Christians to know how to read? All right. So before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for uh, 2022 and all of the wonderful blessings that you've uh, given us. And, and Father, we thank you for the trials and the struggles of 2022 as well, because they, you have used those things to bring us uh, to be more Christ-like. And you have used these things uh, for your good and for your glory. So we thank you for those too. And Father, I pray that as we look ahead to this new year, Father, that we would uh, remember to uh, rely upon you and have our faith set upon you in all the various challenges that we'll, that we'll face. And Father, help us to uh, remember each and every day why we do this whole thing. Why do we do this? Um, it's to raise up disciples and that to, to learn from you and to follow you. And it ultimately is to, to glorify you and to fulfill the Great Commission. That's why we do this every day. So, Father, help us to remember that, especially when we really get back into the routine of things. Oh, Lord, help us to not lose sight of that. And Lord, help us to, uh, to retain our joy in teaching and remembering why we do this in the first place. Um, so that we'll be, uh, we'll do all things as unto you and we'll have a joyful spirit and a joyful attitude about it. And that glorifies you. So father, we thank you for this new year and we thank you for all the blessings that you're going to bring to us. It's in Jesus name. I pray. Amen. 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 So probably all of you know that there is a reading crisis here in America today, right? Less and less people know how to read. Johnny can't read, right? And it's funny, there's an article out there called Johnny's Dad Can't Read Either. So it's it's funny, but it's really sad. Uh, And you can find that article, I think it's a Time Magazine article on the web. But that article says that nearly half of American adults have trouble with reading regular things, like reading the newspaper, or filling out job applications, or balancing a checkbook. Nearly half of American adults have some sort of uh, impairment when it comes to these things. Um, And there's another statistic out there that says that there are over 30 million illiterates among American adults. That's a lot of people who can't read, 
right? Uh, Not long ago, I read about a pastor who had a problem. He was reaching out to his community, and he was working really hard with the youth uh, that were, were out there, and he was instrumental in the conversion of quite a few of them. But he found that it was really difficult to do anything with these young people because there was a percentage of them who couldn't read. And they didn't have the capacity to open up the Bible and to make sense of it, to understand what was written in its pages. Um, And at one point, there were 23 million people in America who couldn't apply for a driver's license because they couldn't read enough to actually take the test. Now, so much so that these days they've had to simplify the test in order to uh, accommodate people who had trouble reading it. Um, They couldn't read road signs. I don't know if you've noticed. I know in Europe that they've they've kind of taken words out of road signs altogether where it's completely pictures um, because people can't read the road signs. They're illiterate. Um, Now, we're graduating more and more of these sorts of people. Uh, I read of one time a young man who had graduated from high school, and he had offers from a number of colleges uh, and universities, free ride, because he was a good basketball player. He was going to get on with a basketball scholarship. He was tall. He was fit. He was really talented. But he turned them all down because he wasn't interested in any more schooling. He didn't want to go to school anymore. Now, and, and he couldn't read. Uh, now, how he, how he would have gotten through college, I have no idea. Uh, I guess that's probably the same way he got through elementary school and high school. He couldn't read. So this poses a very serious problem, that there is a crisis in our civilization. And increasingly in our culture today, unskilled labor is less and less in demand. You know, a generation ago, there was still a substantial place in American life for unskilled labor. But one invention after another has eliminated unskilled labor. You know, back in the old days, when a sewer line or any kind of pipeline was to be laid, you had a large number of ditch diggers that work laying the trench. But you don't see that anymore. Why is that? Yeah, because one backhoe operator can, in a very short amount of time, do what a large number of unskilled laborers used to do, and they save a lot of money with one backhoe versus paying all of these unskilled laborers to dig. And, and this is typical of what has happened over the past hundred years. Uh, the unskilled worker is obsolete. Now, he, uh, he's uh, in greater supply than ever before. I'm not saying that there's no available options for blue-collar work. That's not the same thing as unskilled work. Blue-collar work is very skilled work. But by and large, the, the typical ditch digger you're not, if, you, if you put on your application or your job experience, and I'm a, I was a ditch dicker, you're not going to find any work. No one's going to employ you, right? And, and since you know, these ditch diggers are, uh, since those who don't have skills in the labor force, uh, since they're unemployable, where do they end up going to get income or to get taken care of? Government welfare, right, exactly. Uh, you know, if, and if someone is not employed by the time they're 22 or 23 years old, usually they're never going to be trained for work unless a massive shift happens in their lives, right? Their lifestyle and their habits will make them permanent welfare recipients for the rest of their lives. 
And we can see that the humanist government schools, they are committing suicide here, right? They are destroying their own children. It's destroying its own culture. And this is why it's so important for us at CCA and other Christian schools to undo that kind of damage that's been done. And in no other religion is language more important than ours. Think about that. Our religion is the religion of the Word. The Word. God gives us a revealed Word. And no other religion has anything remotely comparable to this. As a result, our faith is intensely and inseparably connected with language. So we have to respect language because language is the means whereby God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And in order to maintain the integrity uh, of that revelation, we must retain and maintain the integrity of language. A language, any language, and its grammar are an expression of a people and its history. It's an expression of its culture and an expression of its religion. Language is inherently religious. Now, we're often told today that language and grammar happen randomly through evolution. And and language is purely an historical product. Therefore, it's artificial. Uh, Many say that language and grammar are subject to change and to development. And those who criticize what's called the new grammar out there, by the way, it's no grammar at all, They're accused of believing that the traditional grammar is a special revelation from God. Now, first of all, the new grammar that's taught these days, outside of phonetics, outside of what we teach, uh, the philosophy behind it is total relativism. It's relativism. It's relativistic. So many children, you know, especially, you know, ghetto children, they're told that their style of speech, their expression... Is perfectly legitimate, and they don't need to change anything about the way they talk because language is conventional, and it's arbitrary, so they're told, right? And what happens when you're told that sort of thing if you speak a certain way and it's substandard according to an objective standard? Do you improve? Why would you? (laughs) Why would you? So there's no attempt to make them improve. And, and, you know, of course, we see the, the beginnings of this in the latest edition of Webster's Dictionary. You know, Webster's Dictionary used to be such a great dictionary. It used to be Christian through and through. Uh, Noah Webster was a Christian. But now in the latest edition, uh, the idea of standards gets demolished. You know, it was the beginning of the belief that there are no standards with respect to language or to grammar. And that language being purely conventional the language of the ghetto or, uh, or the illiterate is, is as valid as the language of Shakespeare, and it's as valid as the language of Milton. Therefore, we have increasingly seen a butchering of language, both in the schools, in popular culture, and in many works of fiction today. So, <clears throat> Now, it's not necessary or even sensible to believe that grammar is a revelation from God in order to deny the radical relativism of contemporary educators with respect to grammar. So, grammar and language are relative to a culture, so they say, right? But even a degree of relativity doesn't make it necessary nor even sensible to affirm 
a radical relativism. All right, let me, I'll explain this. So neither man nor his word are absolute, right? What or who is absolute? God, right. God alone is the absolute. Therefore, all things in this world are relative to whom? To God, God, right. And because all things are God's creation, everything in creation is relative first to God and then second to each other within creation, right? So there must be a degree of relativity in all of creation. But we make all things relative to God, whereas the new grammar makes all things relative to who? To man, that's right. And therefore they deny that there can be any standard with language or anything else. So language and grammar are relative to people's faith and history. So this doesn't mean that there is no element of value or truth to uh, like non-Christian language, so to speak. Right. Uh, on the contrary, we have to say that because a people's language and grammar are products of their faith and history, the kind of religion uh, that a people will have will in time profoundly affect their language and their grammar. Religion affects language. Religion affects grammar. Uh, and these things will have their form in their language because of their faith. Okay. Now, let's take a really quick and necessary glance at languages, okay? So, the early civilization, the earliest civilization to reach uh, greatness and to reach it in a a spectacular manner was the, the Chinese civilization. Now, very early on, Chinese civilization developed to a very high degree, right? Uh, But very early on, at the same time, the philosophy of Chinese culture became relativistic. So, you know, the kind of thinking that we think that John Dewey developed like, you know, 150 years ago, China had already developed 2,000 years ago, right? So, and as a result of this radical relativism in Chinese culture uh, for the last 2,000 years, this has left a far-reaching impact on the language of China, So Chinese language, uh, because it has this background for this intense radical relativism, uh, it doesn't have anything like the grammatical construction that we're familiar with in English, right? And it's in the Chinese language and the Chinese culture, they are very present oriented as it views the past and the future, okay? So very present-oriented. We're going to see that as a, as a trend in, in most uh, pagan languages, right? or most pagan cultures and societies. And we'll see how that reflects in its language. Uh, let's think about Africa, the various uh, countries and, and tribes in Africa. In Africa, the language uh, manifests a past tense and a present tense and a very near future tense. Uh, in other words, it's tomorrow and the next day. Now, I'm not, I'm, this is a generalization. There are various tribes who don't have that, but the majority of, uh, of African nations uh, who, don't, you know, who don't have a Christian worldview, a Christian culture, uh, the, as far in the future as they go is tomorrow and the next day in their language. Uh, and beyond that, there's nothing. There's nothing. Uh, it has no concept of the future beyond the immediate present. Uh, and that's one reason why many nations in Africa have not advanced culturally. 
It's not because of any lack of intelligence. Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, one of the more remarkable inventions in the history of the world uh, prior to the modern industrial revolution was the sedan chair for African chiefs. Y'all know what a sedan chair is? It's basically this chair. It's a real simple view. You, this chair with, you know, two poles on the side of it, and the chief sits on the chair, and there's one guy on each side of the pole, and they, and they taxi him around, Right. But uh, the, the advancement of the sophistication of the sedan chair uh, showed a perfect mastery of suspension so that the carriers could transport the chief over the roughest kind of ground and they would never jar or make the chief fall out of his chair. Uh, they would never, he, would, he would never have his chair tilted, no matter what the carriers did in the way of climbing up and down a hillside or if they're walking over boulders or rocky terrain, the chief always had a cushioned ride. Now, that's the exception to the rule, right? There are tremendous principles involved in that sedan chair. But you see, all the inventiveness that marked African thinking was present-oriented. No concept of the future. And this is why uh, Wycliffe Bible translators, when they go into any area to uh, translate the Bible or portions of Scripture into the language of the native peoples, they have to deal with this very difficult problem in translation. Uh, because any of us have read the Old and New Testament, I mean, it's loaded with future tense, right? We are a future-oriented uh, religion, a future-oriented worldview. So these translators that are trying to translate the Bible into these native languages, uh, they have to take the tools of that native language uh, and they have to try to create a new view of life uh, to make an effect out of it a new language. Uh, and that's exactly what happens. That's why, you know, uh, Bible translation around the world is so important because the culture has affected these languages, right? So the trouble in understanding other cultures is that their language carries with it a totally different world of meaning because the culture is of a completely different faith. Their language is conditioned and it's governed by those meanings so that when you approach their language, you approach it, essentially, if you're not a part of their culture, you're approaching that language as a stranger who takes a simple word and gives it content that it doesn't have in the original language. Let's say you're trying to learn, you know, just a random language in maybe Mandarin Chinese, or they're beginning to have a future tense because the Euro European culture has made such an effect on them. But, you know, there's other dialects of Chinese that aren't as popular as Mandarin. Um, you try to learn that language. Well, as soon as you learn a word, you're immediately going to import your Christian worldview into what that word means. But that word may not mean anything uh, as the same as what you're importing it to mean, Right. So uh, that's, that's the trick and the, um, the blessing uh, and the, the, the difficulties that Bible translators have to encounter when uh, they encounter a new language. Um, you know, that's why, to me, I think it's really amazing uh, that Greek, you know, Koine Greek, was set up by God for the translation of the New Testament, well before the New Testament writers obviously wrote it, right? Like... Uh, Take one word, agape, right? What's that mean? Love, love right? Love, which is pure grace. That's, that's the, the connotations of that word, agape, right? 
Well, think about it. In classical Greek, there was no word agape. They had no concept of that in classical Greek. Okay? But there was that kind of word in the Hebrew Old Testament. So, uh, you know, a couple of centuries before Christ, um, 70 scholars and leaders translated the Old Testament into uh, the Greek language. Anybody know what that copy of the Old Testament's called? Septuagint? The Septuagint, right. Uh, so the Septuagint is basically a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so, well, this concept of love was found all over the Hebrew Old Testament. Hesed, is my steadfast love, right? That's there. So, well, these writers of the Septuagint, you know, 200 B.C., they have no way to translate this word. There's no word in classical Greek that can, or that can uh, encapsulate this, this concept, this meaning. So they had to make up a new word, right? They had to make up that word in Greek that could represent God's love and his favor if they wanted to translate the Old Testament correctly. Now, that was well before the New Testament writers wrote all you know, the, the, the epistles and the gospels and all of that. This happened a couple of centuries before the New Testament was written. So uh, by the time the first century Christians read the New Testament and the writers wrote the New Testament, they already had categories. They could use the word agape because the Septuagint translation paved the way for that word to be understood. And it paved the way, in, at least into Jewish culture, for that word to actually have meaning. So that when Paul writes agape, people know what it means. But classical Greek didn't have that at all, right? They, uh, God had put that concept into existence through the reading of the Septuagint and its effect on that culture. Isn't that something? That's so cool how God does that. That's providential. God made the way for that to happen. And those sorts of things happen like that all the time in Bible translation if we're, as we're translating the Bible into you know, new languages. Um, but those concepts and those words like agape, they were not in existence in classical Greek before the Septuagint. You know, Aristotle had no clue what agape was. If you would have told him agape, he, he would think you're speaking another language. Uh, that, that word and its meaning of love and favor was totally foreign to Aristotle. You know, and one of our problems, incidentally, in, in understanding Aristotle and as we approach Aristotle too often, we, we approach him too often in the mind uh, like uh, Aquinas would approach him, Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas basically read Aristotle and took over Aristotle's categories of thought and he revised them to give them semi-Christian categories. But Aristotle didn't write with Christian categories at all. No, he wrote with humanistic categories. Man was the center, not God. So when Aristotle talks about ethics, uh, he's talking about something very different from what you and I mean by ethics. You know, where does, for us, where does ethics come from? God, right? <laughs> yeah, the Bible. Exactly, from our theology. That's where ethics comes from. Uh, but for Aristotle, uh, where does his ethics come from? It comes from his politics. Uh, because it is not God that is at the center, it is man that is at the center. And it is man as a social animal, that's the center of his worldview. So when he's talking about morality, he has in mind what the state says about morality, what the collective man says about morality, uh, not what the Lord says. 
And, and that's one example of the problem that you face when you deal with various non-Christian languages. We import our Christian understandings. We read our Christianity into uh, these pagan works, and that's not what they intended at all. And that's why I think we have so many of the problems with syncretism that we have. I think that's you know over 80% of the problem with the Roman Catholic faith because they did this. They took Aquinas and his thought, and they tried to mash it together with Aristotle, when Aristotle didn't mean anything what they meant, right? So that's, I think that's, that's a theory. That's not, that's not law. That's just my opinion. But I think, that, I think uh, some major problems happen whenever we read uh, our culture into other ones like that. Okay, <clears throat> so like I said earlier, there are different views of time in different cultures, Right. Let me give you another example. Uh, Plutarch, in Plutarch's lives, he tells of the Temple of Isis. And the inscription there on the image of Isis says this. It says, I am all that has come into being, and that which is, and that which shall be, and no man hath lifted my veil. Now, does that sound familiar to you? What does that sound like? It is omnipotence language, that's true. But to me, it's, it resembles what Jesus told John in the book of Revelation, where he declares that he is the Lord, the Almighty, uh, he who was and is and is to come. It's the same language. But there's a fundamental difference between the Temple of Isis statement saying that and our Lord Jesus saying that, despite them sounding alike. What's the difference? It's all about the worldview underlying it. Well, the temple of Isis, they, that temple and the people that represented, they reflected a Greco-Egyptian culture. You know, the past was real to them, the present was real to them, but the future was completely unknown. No clue of the future. No man hath lifted or can lift my veil. So the future is a total mystery uh, because it hasn't happened yet. And neither the gods nor man have any knowledge of what the future might be in that worldview. The gods were just as curious as mankind to know what was going to happen in the universe. But in terms of our faith as Christians, the Bible says this, Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. See, we have a plan of history. We have an eschatology. No other faith in the world that, that, that is, a, no Eastern faith has any sort of eschatology, right? We are told what's going to happen from the very beginning to the very end. We are told that everything is going to culminate in the second coming of our Lord and of the last judgment. So instead of a future that's dark and that no man can lift the veil of tomorrow, no, we are told that everything is crystal clear to God. See how that, that's totally different and that affects our language. That gives us a totally different uh, concept of time. Therefore, it gives a totally different perspective on language. See, because of the word of God, our language reflects a faith which says that we live not only in terms of the present, but we live in terms of tomorrow and ultimately in terms of the last judgment. Uh, we are the only people under the sun with that perspective. You ever thought about that? We take that for granted so much because we are just so immersed in this culture. Um, but we are the only people, Christians, true Christians, are the pe only people under the sun with that type of perspective. 
And, and that faith manifests itself in our thinking. And that faith manifests itself in our words and in our language and in all of our lives. And we often take that for granted. So now the new relativistic grammar destroys all of that. So that ultimately, as you change the language through new grammar, you will change any possibility of grasping what Scripture is talking about. Right? You're going to create a new religion. Or, or more accurately, you have a new religion, which is humanism, which is creating a new grammar, which is waging war against the old grammar and against the old faith. So that's, this is why it was so true what one Wycliffe Bible translator reported. As a native convert on reading the first Bible portion translated into his language by the Wycliffe translators, he said this joyfully. He says, we speak a new tongue now. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. That's what Bible translation does. It enables a people to, in effect, speak a new language because their language probably was very present-oriented, and now we have a view of the future. Now we have a whole host of words, new words, new meanings. It's like I speak a new language now. That's what happens. It opens up a vision with regard to time and when, uh, with regard to the world because it's governed by the fact that God is the Lord. Uh, but there's nothing outside of God. And while there, might, there may be mysteries to us, there are no mysteries to God. You know, by and large, yeah, sure. Between some of the things that happen between now and the second coming, we don't know all the nitty-gritty details, right? But we do know what the future holds. And are we hopeful? I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. We're hopeful. That's because there aren't any mysteries to God. God is sovereign. He's in control of the future. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the first and the last. He who was, who is, and is to come. The Almighty. Right? And our grammar reflects that. Uh, now, the new grammar that's taught outside of Christianity reflects existentialism. Its, it's emphasis is on the here and the now. That's what's important. It's present-oriented. It, it's the language of the moment. And, and proponents of this new grammar think that, that language is like clothes, like a T-shirt you, you can wear one day, and whenever it gets old and tattered, you can toss it aside and get a new T-shirt. Right? That's how they treat language. Uh, and, and they think that structure is the enemy. Structure is the enemy. And our culture says all the time, don't put me in a box. Right? Don't put me in a box. Where our rampant autonomy... And individualism is making its way into our language. As we rebel more and more against God and his law order, his creation order, our autonomy and individualism is making its way into the language, and it's changing it. And the new language is reflecting that man-centered worldview. Right? But as we know, in the end, this is God's world, right? And life is a box. And life has structure. You know, man is not a jellyfish. You know, his body is a structured body. He has bones. Uh, his mind is a structured mind. Uh, he lives in a structured world. Whether you believe it or not, you live in a structured world. And if he is to continue to function as a man, he is going to be either structured or he's going to be judged. Those are your choices. No structure, no life. No box, no life. It's that simple. So therefore, um, grammar and reading and language is extremely important. 
And because CCA and other Christian schools believes, we believe in the infallible word, the logos, it must emphasize, we have to emphasize the command of language and the command of grammar. Uh, and, and we must believe in, in structuring our students, giving them structure, in drilling them, in disciplining them, in discipling them in grammar. And, and we will do this uh, uh, systematically and thoroughly because it's so important to the future of the child. Moreover, it's imperative to our future as Christians to preserve Christian language. Now, I mentioned that guy who was the star basketball player uh, and couldn't read. Now, he was a Christian, but he was a baby Christian, right? And he remained a baby Christian. He never grew up. He never grew in his faith, you know? And that's, that's really unfortunate. There are a lot of people like that, that they are Christians. Thank the Lord for that. But they remain babies. And, uh, you know, you can stress all you want the ministry of the church, and you can stress the evangelist and preaching the gospel, you know, to, to every person. But if all you do is convert Christians who never grow up, how strong will the church be? Really? So, you know, that particular pastor who, you know, ministered to that uh, to those people who, uh, to those kids who couldn't read, essentially, he eventually went into Christian education. But he saw from episodes like that how basic it was for uh, for these children to read in their Christian walk. They have to be able to read, and, and you know, he tried to start some remedial work with some of uh, the older converts that he had, but he didn't find them too consistent or very faithful in it. Uh, but it made him realize all the more urgently of the need for Christian schooling. And, you know, how can the church survive today if we have 30 million adults who are illiterate in the United States and 10 million more are coming out of government schools and increasing every year? How? How can the church survive that? You know, at, at the present rate, it won't be too long before three out of four people will be functional illiterates if this rate keeps up. Now, of course, you know, I'm an optimist. I don't believe that's really going to happen because the Christian school right now is making such tremendous strides into the school population. Uh, Christian education is growing by leaps and bounds right now. Um, I, I, believe, I don't believe that's ultimately going to be the case. But you can see the dimensions of the problem and, and why it is that our work is so important. It's so important. And I trust it will enable you to see why I'm so optimistic about the future. Uh, in terms of Christian schools, because they're going to create the leadership of tomorrow. Now, let me go off on a rabbit trail. It's a plan rabbit trail. So uh, I don't know if you can really call it that. But uh, I'll take a couple of moments to tell you some of the things that should make us realize that the world is structured by God. Um, how many of us are familiar with J.D. Unwin's name? Does that sound familiar at all? That's not surprising because J.D. Unwin was a humanist to the core. Uh, he was a modern scientist. He was an anthropologist. Uh, and his work was so devastating to him and to his associates that his whole industry has ignored it, his findings. In fact, Unwin, after spending most of his life developing his research, spent his last years in trying to find some loophole in it so that he can find some way to make an end run around the facts that he has discovered. So here's some of the facts that he discovered. So Unwin, as a young anthropologist, hated the Christian faith. 
He's very cynical of the Christian perspective that he encountered from many people. And he felt that there was no correlation between morality, in particular sexual morality, and culture. There's no correlation between those two things. That's his theory. That's his hypothesis, okay? And so he began to study, in order to prove that true, he began to study every culture of which there was data, okay? Uh, Every culture in the ancient world, every culture in the modern world, every primitive tribe he could find, uh, he began to write down their sexual regulations in the culture and, and their standards. And then he began to document their cultural level, like how advanced they were as a culture. Okay? And to his dismay, he found that there was a mathematical correlation between sexual regulations in a culture and how advanced they were culturally. There was a mathematical correlation. There's a strong connection. So in other words, if, if in a culture there was neither premarital nor postmarital chastity, that culture was not advanced in any other area, right? And it wasn't becoming more advanced. Uh, and usually that entire tribe or nation couldn't count past 10. And, and in some cultures in South America that he found, they, they, don't, pa- they don't count past three. So, and their cultural achievements were so primitive that they only had, you know, the, only the crudest kinds of shelter, you know, four poles and a tin roof on top of them, right? Their ability to think abstractly was severely limited, and, and they were basically at a dead end culturally. They were, they were not advanced. They were not on the road to advancement as a culture, okay? And, and they had, that was a culture that had zero sexual regulations, okay? neither postmarital or premarital chastity, okay? So, if, however, into a culture, he found, sexual regulations began to enter so that there uh, might be, uh, say, uh, postmarital chastity, well, he would see a correlation there. He would immediately see a step upward in the cultural level. Uh, But he really found when there was premarital and postmarital chastity, then you had science, and you had high culture in civilization. He found that there was a mathematical correlation between the two things. And he found, moreover, that if you had a radical breakdown, a total breakdown in three generations, from having those regulations to not having them, the culture went from top to bottom, from this highly sophisticated scientific culture to a dead level where you couldn't count beyond the fingers of your own two hands. All of that in two or three generations, that quick. Right now, this would seem kind of discouraging to us because we can see sexual regulations breaking down left and right, right? But to Unwin, finding this information out was very upsetting to him. Scientists are never, uh, never impartial; <laughs> they're never neutral. You always, uh, you're, you're always interpreting the science, the data. And Unwin was upset about it. And you can see why his work, by and large, has been neglected. But it does tell you something about the nature of the universe, doesn't it? It's structured. It's structured. And, and the structure is a very obvious scriptural kind of structuring. Uh, the, the basic truth that the soul that sins, it shall die. That's a basic truth. The same goes for the culture. The culture that sins, it too shall die. So structure is written into the nature of reality. 
And this is why it is so important to us with respect to language. Now, again, this tells us a great deal, too, why language has played the part in our society that it has. You know, consider one fact. Consider this. At the time of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, you had classic translations of the Bible. You had magnificent translations of the Bible made into a variety of languages. You had Luther's translation into German, for example. You had the Geneva Bible translated into English. And you had the King James Version translated into English, right? Now, one of the things that these translations have done has been to give fixity to the language. Fixity, like, the, like it's structure, it's foundation, sticking around. So when the King James, uh, for example, when that was translated, it was, uh, it was more old-fashioned language than obsolete than it is today, right? The, translation, the translators intentionally went back to a very old-fashioned, a very basic Anglo-Saxon kind of English, which was actually alien to many of the people of their day. But they wanted to get back to a basic English when they translated the Bible, and they did it. Now, you know, the English language has departed from that again and again, right? But every time there has been a great revival, it's always gone back to very basic, simple English, such as the King James has in its pages, right? Now, this has meant that since the early 1600s to the present, we have an English language that is comprehensible to us. We, we, can, we can comprehend it. Isn't that amazing? We can go back 400 years, 500 years, and read what uh, these reformers wrote and basically understand all of it, right? That's amazing. Uh, now, go back to 1611 when King James came out, right? Go back to 1511, 100 years before that, you're going to find the English language very difficult to understand. Even the, the culture in 1611 would have had trouble understanding the, the English language of 1511. Isn't that something? You almost have to learn it. Uh, you go back to Chaucer, even before that, Geoffrey Chaucer. How many of you have read or studied Chaucer, even a little bit? Well, if you read Chaucer in the original English that it was written in, you'll see how different the language is there. Like, and, you know, I have a, a copy of Chaucer in my library that's the original English, and it is very hard to understand. You almost have to relearn, you have to learn that language before you can read it, okay? Uh, Chaucer's English, we see how foreign Chaucer's English is compared to our spoken English today. But go back 100 years before Chaucer. Again, the language would be incomprehensible to Chaucer. Chaucer wouldn't be able to understand what was English was written 100 years before that. You see, then you'd have to relearn the language all over again with that. So this continual change was happening all the time in language. But it was the Bible that gave fixity to uh, the modern languages of Europe. And this has made progress possible. So instead of, you know, what it would be like not to be able to understand or read what was written in 1923, 100 years ago. But we can read it perfectly. 1823, you know, there'll be some words that we're not familiar with, but one simple look in a dictionary will fix that. But by and large, we can understand 95% of what we read or even crack open the King James Bible. 
you can read, you can open it up anywhere and read probably 98% of what's written there, right? That's amazing. That's God's doing. And, and it's the translation and language of the Bible that made our, at least our English language and German, and German and all of those European languages fixed. That's incredible. So we don't have to learn half a dozen forms of English to be able to read what historians and scientists and scholars and writers have said 100 or 200 years ago. That's amazing. We can understand them because the King James Version has given fixity to our language and to our grammar. And every time we have a revival, uh, it brings us back to that fixity of language. And, and reading the King James Bible gives people that schooling in basic English which holds the language to a pattern and makes possible a continuity and therefore makes progress, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not like a King James-only guy. I'm just giving you an example. King James, the King James Bible has been the major proponent of, of, of why we have the English that we have today and why it's been fixed uh, for so many years and how we can understand words that were written three, four hundred, five hundred years ago. It's because of that translation of the Bible. So I, I definitely tip my hat to King James Version. Okay? So um, think about this. Y'all remember the, well, maybe some of y'all weren't alive during this, but the Soviet Union. You remember reading about the Soviet Union? Some of us were alive when that was going on. So I'm sorry. Yeah. So the Soviet Union. Yeah. Well, uh, they tried to break that continuity before they dissolved. They committed suicide, essentially. Uh, they tried to break that continuity of language so that in a generation or two, no one would be able to read a, 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 the Russian version of the Bible that was readable a generation ago and understand it. They were trying to break that stuff. And many rebellious cultures want to do that. Right now, our culture, by and large, wants to do that. They're doing that with pronouns right now. They're going to switch to other forms of language. They're going to switch to other grammatical uh, concepts pretty soon. But they're breaking all of that stuff down. They want to separate themselves from the whole of their culture and their tradition and all of their literature. They want to break themselves from that, and they're ready to do that, right? They want to start over without any hangover from the past. They want to start over without any hangover from Christian civilization. That's why they're doing it. See, because language is a tool of revolution. It's a tool of revolution, and this is why in the teaching of grammar, the structure is so important because you are insisting in maintaining a continuity. Here at school, when you teach grammar, when you teach phonograms, when you teach reading, you're insisting upon a continuity. You're insisting upon a structure that cannot be moved. Okay, uh, and, and basic to that continuity is a continuity in terms of a language that has developed its thought patterns. It's developed its sense of time. It's developed in terms of the revealed word of God. So when you're teaching reading, you're teaching letters and phonograms, don't forget all of this, okay? This isn't just a drill that oh, you just got to learn to read to be successful. No, like you're, you're, you're attaching them to a foundation that has been set in place you know, at least in the English language, over the past 500 years. And you're connecting them with a worldview and a faith that believes in the Lord and believes that the Lord has the future in the palm of his hands. If they don't know how to read and learn these things, they're not going to get that worldview. So what you're doing is very, very important. 
in, in that development in their lives. This is a tremendous heritage that we are continuing to pass on. And it is in the process of being uh, rescued by Christian schools. You know, we are trying to take this stuff back and rescue it. And this is why I think you know the Christian school, we can't ever underestimate the importance of grammar, and we can't underestimate the importance of, of English and in the King James Bi- version of the Bible, too.